first, a word from our sponsor, the insurance people. Medicare open enrollment has started now through December 7th. Do you need help enrolling? Are you ready to shop your Medicare supplement, Part D medication, or Medicare Advantage plan? The insurance people, located in Illinois, specializes in helping you select the best Medicare option for your needs. You can find them at insurancepl.com. That is insurance, our favorite word, followed by the letters PPL, or call 773-697-8082. Again, insurancepl.com or 773-697-8082. Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of women over 70 aging reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. Visit womenover70.com to make a donation, discover our books for women section, and learn more about the Women Over 70 community. Invite us to conduct workshops or speak to your organization. We share clips from our podcast and offer strategies that enrich women's lives as they age. And today we have welcomed into our studio Linda Seeger. Linda is 76, and she was referred to us by Grant Robin, a screenwriter. She is a theologian and a most prolific writer, having authored 17 books, seven on the subject of spirituality, and 10 on screenwriting. Her landmark book is Making a Good Script Great and is a classic. Recently, her newest book was released, God's Part in Our Art, Making Friends with the Creative Spirit. Linda lives in Colorado, plays piano, and has several horses. For her 75th birthday, she premiered a world commission for piano with eight hands. Her mantra is, let's see if we can make this work. Thank you, Linda, for being on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. And thank you for having me here. (laughs) You're so welcome. When we spoke, I was struck by your openness to continue learning and always to learn from the best. That that really stuck with me. And you said you have three teachers now. So let's start there. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yes. I went back to piano in 2017. I hadn't had a lesson in 50 years, and I hadn't played for probably eight or 10 years. So in between in those 50 years, I occasionally played. And when I was in Los Angeles, I had a duet partner for about six years, which was great fun. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And the uh, somebody recommended this teacher, his name is Abe, and I thought he was just terrific. And then he said he was going on vacation for two months. And I said, can you send me somewhere else where you're gone? And I went to Sarah and Sarah was just terrific. And Abe came back and I said, well, I don't see any problem with two teachers. <laughs> and then I met a woman, a concert pianist uh, here in Colorado Springs named Karen. And she had a technique that just really fascinated me and I thought would help because my hands were getting tired and achy from Mm -hmm. playing. And so I then work with her as well. So I have three piano teachers. There is full disclosure. Everybody knows about everybody. And I learned something different. And I, I have also learned to kind of lead the lesson. 
You know, when you're younger, sometimes what happens is the teacher says, and now we're going to do a Bach, and now we're going to do this. And instead, I say, I really want to work on this piece or this section. And um, so I do a lot more of what do I want to get out of the lesson versus what does the teacher want to do with me? That seems to be the way you have operated your entire life. <laughs> well, but I'm curious. I'm curious because you, you mentioned this technique and I dabble at piano and my hands get tired. Do you want to share that with us? Well, it has a lot to do with the, the, the drop of the wrist and the movement of the wrist and keeping the hands moving. But hers is it's a real brain teaser. It's been hard to learn because sometimes your right hand is falling and your left hand is lifting and you're, you have to take it so slow to learn it. But what's been happening, my hands, I think, look so much more beautiful on the piano and I'm hitting the right notes more often and I'm not having these wrist problems that I had before. <laughs> okay. So, and you can watch her. Her name's Karen Walwyn. She actually teaches at Howard University and she's also a concert pianist. Uh-huh. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's great. So, so um, piano, just, you, you know, you had talked about um, commissioning a work. Tell us more about that. Yes. Well, the, um, I often have ideas. My husband is used to me saying, I have an idea. And I wanted to form a piano quartet because some of these competitions are for two pianos, four hands and two pianos, eight hands. But there's not huge amounts of piano literature for quartets. And I thought it would be fun to play a, you know, something from a musical. So I started looking to see, is it possible to get permission to take a duet and move it over to two pianos, eight hands? And uh, it was for each song in the medley, uh, it's from Rodgers and Hammerstein, it was $20 for each song. So I had songs, but then I had to hire an arranger. And that meant an arranger who was comfortable adapting somebody else's work and somebody who had time and somebody who wasn't too expensive. And I searched for about three months. And every time I was ready to give up, I kept saying, now, wait a minute, I let me try this other thing or let me try this. And we got this amazing arranger and a special thing, and I think this happens too when you're older and more confident, I said, can you pitch this piece for my partners are at are advanced and I'm an intermediate player, so pitch my part to make sure it's not too hard. <laughs> and and there, she gave me two measures that I had trouble playing because of my wrist, and she said, let me fix them for you. So, we, you know, so it's... It, and, and I'm thinking of commissioning another piece for the quartet, but I don't know yet what we might do and, and what's possible. But I know Rodgers and Hammerstein is possible because I've done that before. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you, play, you had it done for your 75th birthday. It was actually for my 76th birthday. And uh, so we played it then. And then this, um, we're going to be doing a competition in Pueblo. And then we're going to do a competition in Broadmoor, and we will be playing that. Plus, I have a, a duo piano um, partner, and we are playing a jazz piece on both. 
Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. And, and, uh, I'll just add one thing. You know, when you're 76, you have nothing to lose. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you win first or not. And it doesn't matter who's there and how marvelous they are. And you just have fun and you keep learning, but you really have have fun. And um, that becomes important in choosing the people you work with and play with and the teachers. And you say, we're, we're not in it for the money and we're not in it for the fame. It's too late for that. <laughs> right, right. So, so your life's taken many different turns, and and you you know you said you look at them as stages and chapters. You're a theologian, and and so how does that all fit, Linda? Well, I here's something I learned some years ago was to not put age in the equation. So if you can do it, why not? And and not to live my life with regrets. So if there was something I have wanted to do, well, then let's just do it. Mm -hmm. If you can still do it. And of course, many, many things, as long as we're walking and talking, we probably can still um, can still do most things. So when I was in my 40s, I decided to go back to horseback riding. I grew up without a lot of physical confidence. We used to say we play piano and we read books, but anything that's that's anything risky, oh, what if she falls off a horse? So when I was in my 40s, I decided I wanted to address that. I loved horses and I decided to go on a cattle drive. So I had to take lessons for some months because you have to sit on a horse for five or eight hours when uh -huh. you drive cattle oh. and you have to make sure you know what you're doing too. So I got back in that. I did riding vacations. And in 2003, and I was in my fifties, I got my first horse and I spent really 10 years over that period of time. I had four horses at various times and I did competitive horseback riding started from, you know, I mean, I'd done some riding, but, what I also discovered is that you you can't make up for the technique you haven't been doing with the people who have been doing it for 50 years. So as one person said to me, you can't catch up. You know, she says, I've been in the saddle since I was eight. You really have done most of your work in the saddle since you were 50. But what I did discover was to think, what do I bring? In fact, I interviewed Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek fame once, and he says, always ask, what do I bring to the party? And I thought, I'm musical and horses. There's some classes where horses ride to music. So I capitalized on the one thing I had going for me while also working to get better and better. Mm -hmm. And I did improve. And once I got a second in one of the classes. And uh, I think I won, you know, a little bit of money once. So uh, usually when there's very few people in the class. And, uh, but that was a magnificent chapter. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And I love cowboys and I love Western <laughs> life. And um, the piano is a new magnificent chapter. I'm about four years in at this point. 
And I, um, when I was in the 1990s, I went back and got another master's degree in feminist theology. And it was a seven, I, I did it over seven years because I was working and I took one class a quarter. And it was another lovely thing. And it had no reason to do it. It had nothing to do with my work. I just wanted to do it. And also in 2015, I had wanted to take a um, Shakespeare class in England since I was 25. And so I went to Cambridge University for two weeks and studied Shakespeare in 2015 when you know I was about 70 then. So it's it's a matter, I think, of you keep saying yes. And you say you, you just don't get too bogged down about age. Linda, could you say a little bit more about feminist theology? What does that describe yeah. that for our listeners? Uh, well, you know, the Bible is pretty patriarchal, and the great heroes in the Bible are men, you know, the Moses and the Abraham and all that. Um, so feminist theology begins to look at, well, who are the women? And who are the women in the Bible that are important? There's deaconesses in, in the book of Acts, and of course, um, the Virgin Mary and Hannah. And I mean, there, there are these remarkable women that don't get talked about very much. Mm -hmm. And so you study that. You also study how feminism focuses very much on equality, that everyone has a voice. And so you look at social justice issues from the female point. How mm -hmm. is the female um, you know, maybe gets the short end of the stick a lot of times, or uh, uh, social problems can fall more heavily on people of color and women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you study a lot of social problems, like there was an eco-feminist who was one of my teachers, and uh, lots of diversity in the class. You heard a lot of people's stories. You understood more about what poor women go through. You learned about white privilege. I'm a white privilege, middle-class woman. And you say, well, what does that all mean? And you, you study it and you say, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand that. Now, has that made its way into your writing? Because I know you've authored so many books. Yes, I actually have a book out on a form of thinking. I call it web thinking, but it's moving. It's how do you move away from the linear model of thinking? And I'm going to do a new edition of that book in the next six months. It'll be called Connecting, Not Competing for Success. And it will talk about, the, the, about what linear thinking is and why we, many women, I mean, as part of feminism, is to say all this hierarchy, competition, and all that. There are other ways of doing business, of doing our life, of doing our relationships. I could just ask one more question. I just, I was thinking about what, to what extent being competitive fits in your life because you've, you've been, you were doing competitions for piano and, and you were doing competitive horseback riding. And then now you're talking about connecting. So how do you how do you think about your uh, being in those competitions? Well, the the first thing is you don't worry about winning or losing, and there is a certain sense of humor, and you go in with a spirit of generosity instead of competitiveness. Mm. 
Many people, I, I used to know um, ice skaters doing, doing paraskating and they, they almost made the Olympics four years ago. And she said, oh my gosh, it's so political, so competitive. And I talked recently to a composer and she said, I have been with all that competitive junk. She said, I'm at the University of Michigan. It's fabulous. We support each other. So for instance, Saturday is uh, when I'll be doing this next competition. I will, there will probably be a lot of young people there. And I want to go in with the spirit of wonderful job, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we, we might be the only people in our category, which is the adults over 60 or over 50, something like that. And if we're the only people, we might actually win first. (laughs) And if other people have been taking lessons for 50 years, maybe we'll win second or third. And there is this sense of really applauding everybody. We are there to support and be for everyone. And we've also talked a little bit among our quartet. I said, we're role models. Mm-hmm. We, we, we are role models not only because we're playing. They don't think of people in their 70s doing this. But I said, we're, we're going to be dressed up. We're going to be smiles. We're going to be, you know, really happy about receiving whatever we receive. And we want the joy in the actual doing it. So when I was uh, doing competitive horseback riding, one person said to me, you remind us what it's supposed to be about because you are the only person in that arena that was having fun, you and your (laughs) horse. And they said, that's what it's supposed to be about and not about, oh, can I get an extra point? And what happens is in a way you become more memorable. Mm-hmm. So people would say, I, they said, when we knew you were going to ride, we watched you ride. I said, why? I'm not the best. They said, because you're so happy and you mm-hmm. see your smile. And, you know, so you begin to realize those people are remembering me. And if I came in third, who's they're not going to remember me. Now, remembering is not the most important thing, but we we often think about the person that we hold up as that person who brought joy into it, not the serious person who was trying to knock us off the trapeze or something. I'm curious, Linda, the this spirit of generosity. Uh, is that a, a a skill that you learned, or do you think it was always with you in your entire life? No, I worked on it. I um, and but I my father was very generous, so I had a good model. But when I got into the film industry and started my career as a script consultant, there were people doing seminars, and I, I was the first script consultant. But then other people came along. And people would, you know, sometimes they would say, oh, I just took the most marvelous class in screenwriting. He's got to be the best teacher on earth. And your blood starts to boil. And you said, but, well, what about me? And I said, now, wait a minute. Is this really how I want to live my career in the film industry? And I decided I wanted colleagues, not competitors. So I worked with a therapist 
Every time I got that feeling, I prayed. And it actually took me about 10 years to get over it, where, where I could hear those kind of words about someone else and say, I understand that person is a good teacher. And I also said to myself, everybody who is working to make better scripts, we are on the same side. They might not think we're on the same side, but we are on the same side. That's somebody who has the same objective and goal as I do. And the world is going to be better if there's two people doing that because I can't do it alone. But uh, And I also had a few colleagues who were really role models for me. And I began to notice they were really nice to me. And I was getting in this competitive junk. And I said, no, I want to be friends with Kathy. What's wrong with me? I got to get over this. So there's a uh, there's a lot of learned skills in my life. And when people say, well, you were lucky or you must have always been so nice. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. It's, it's probably been worked on a great deal. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so what do you, what, you haven't talked much about screenwriting. You're not uh, being a script consultant. Are, are you still doing that or no? No, I retired a year and a half ago. And I retired from doing seminars. So my last seminar I did was two years ago in Latvia. And that was kind of a sweet ending. I knew that was going to be the last seminar. I do occasionally give talks. I'm actually giving a sermon in two weeks at a Mennonite church. So I am, and, you know, people say, well, would you come and or Zoom or just talk about such and such where it's not six hours a day of doing a seminar. And so I'm now putting the focus on my books, but I'm also just doing other things. I, I got an art teacher last week and I'm going, I'm, uh, I had my first session with her. Mm-hmm. So when you look ahead, and you think about your own aging and uh, and all so piano are, are you still writing are you still riding horses no i sold my last horse in 2013 and ended that chapter and waited for what would evolve as the next chapter and piano came back in 2017 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that was uh, um that was the that's the new chapter and then i'm um i have worked in almost all art forms in one way or another i mean writing and and theater were my major ones but um the piano is you know it's kind of moving up there but i hadn't done much work in art even though i love art i i love painting and all that so i kept my ears open for about 6 months to say, is there someone I could work one-on-one with? Um, also, I went, I started coloring three or four years ago, and I wanted to expand what I do with art. So I re- went into a gallery in Colorado Springs and started talking to this woman. I loved her work, and I loved her attitude and her easiness. And um, so I said, would you work with me one-on-one? She says, Yes. So we started working last week, and um, I'll I'll do some of what she suggested. 
And then I'll go back to her whenever it's ready, but it will be one-on-one rather than working in a class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I think so, you know, I mean, things evolve when a class might come along and say, oh, I want to do that. Right. So, Right. Yeah. And and um, so you live in Colorado Springs. Do you intend to stay there? Yes, we live in the mountains. We have a hundred year old log home, two story log home on almost two acres. And we're in a little town five miles west of Colorado Springs called Cascade. This was my dream since I was 13 to live in Colorado in the mountains. Mm. So it took about um, 60, well, maybe 55 years to make make that dream come true. But um, I know this area because I went to college in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. And just for fun, I was out here thinking in five years we would move. And I walked into my dream home, which had just gone out for sale and said, I guess there's no reason to stay in Los Angeles. We're ready to move. So we took the opportunity and have been happy for almost 20 years living in my dream home and my dream state and my dream mountains, you know. So it's been it's been great. Oh, yeah. So, but, but I think, I'll just add one thing about that. Sometimes opportunities come up for us where you don't know if it's a temptation or a blessing. Mm. And I had to think about that because I thought, what if I moved and I can't take my career with me? That is, would people really care if they send a script to Los Angeles or Colorado? And I had to really think about that a bit. And said, I think this is a blessing. It's an amazing blessing. And, you know, so, and it was a blessing because as we moved, we have a good life here. And um, as my husband says, it's your favorite place in the universe. (laughs) Do we have a minute for you to tell us about your book, God's Part in Our Art? Absolutely. So this book has been brewing for about 40 or 50 years because I got interested in the relationship of creativity and spirituality in the 1970s. So I went to seminary. I mean, I was already doing creative arts. I was a theater director, but I went to seminary to see how these might uh, fit together. And I have thought a lot about how do you um, and what to what extent is creativity and spirituality intrinsically connected? Now, I don't think it's a hundred percent. I think a lot of people are not spiritual and they're extremely creative. But I think that if we can tune into the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the creative spirit, that our creativity becomes more joyful, more free, um, more possible for perhaps innovation. So I started looking at Bible verses that have to do with creativity in the Bible, and I worked with a rabbi. Now, I started working with her in 1990. I put this aside till a year ago, and I refound her. She had moved, but I found her again. And we really took apart words, you know, what does this word really mean, and what does that mean for us as artists? Mm-hmm. So one of one of the things that I just loved is she said, and uh, when it says the spirit of God 
some translations say was movering over the face of the deep or over the face of the water. She said the word really is hover. It hovers. It's like a it's like a mother eagle mm-hmm. brooding over a nest. And she says, that's one of the things to do in the creative process is hover. And what happens is you move into your creations without that frenetic desperation. You you hover and you move into it quietly, peacefully, and something starts to flow. Mm-hmm. And I also learned, I discuss in this book, the whole idea of being responsive. If you feel that movement of the creative spirit to do something, don't tell the creative spirit, well, I, maybe it's not really you or maybe I'll do it later. It's like the muse. If the muse is sitting by your side, and I think the muse and the creative spirit are very similar, if she's there and she tells you to do something, do it right away. I mean, let the flow happen. And I think we spend a lot of time resisting. It's like all these blessings are coming at us and we just say, oh, you know, I I guess it's not really for me. And you say, yes, it is for you. So. I have practiced pretty much all the ideas in this book. I hover before I start, and um, I think about wisdom. Wisdom is, was by the side of God when uh, the creation was happening. It's Proverbs 8, and she was a joy and a delight. And mm-hmm. I realize if I am not having joy in my creation, I'm not approaching it Um you know, it's like it's there waiting to be joyful and like lighten up, Linda. Just, mm-hmm. you know, take it in and have fun with what you are doing. <laughs> I love your approach. Yes, it is lovely. And where is your book available, Linda? It will definitely on Amazon. And uh, there might be some bookstores in barnesandnoble.com, but, you know, no problem getting it on Amazon. And if people like it, as they can write a, you know, they can write a review (laughs) (laughs) as well. But I'm really hoping they, uh, people enjoy this book. It was written, you know, when something grews for a long time, that. It's really wonderful that moment when it starts to get out. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have a friend who will absolutely love your book. <laughs> Good. Oh, and she's going to get with, it. <laughs> yeah, it deals with all the arts. So it isn't just it's writing, it's dancing, it's photography, it's, I mean, it's very, uh, because I've had experience in all these arts. And I think it's the first book really written by a practicing artist who's also a theologian. So I think that the thing that happens is people who are artists who are spiritual, you know, write books, and people who are spiritual or theologians write books about creation. But this one was written from the inside out. Yeah, you know, it wasn't. And some people said, "Well, you're going to talk about Alfred North Whitehead," and I said, "No, I'm not. He's a philosopher, and he talks about creativity." But I said, "No, that's not what this book is. He's already done the book. I'm doing mine." 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Linda. We could keep this conversation going for a very long time. Unfortunately, we are out of time. And and we really, really appreciate all of your words. Yes, thank you so much. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen or visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can easily access all of our episodes and become a member in the Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Circle. We'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined.